Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob Podcast. Today, it's my great pleasure to be talking with Adam Simkin in Tel Aviv. I met Adam when I was in Tel Aviv a few months ago for the first GeoMob, and he was talking about his company, Autofleet.io, and about the challenges of calculating estimated times of arrival. Um, it was a fascinating talk, and I wanted to get Adam on the podcast to talk to us in English for an international audience because understanding his talk in Ivrit was a challenge for me and would have been even more of a challenge for many of our listeners. So, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Stephen. Uh, really uh, happy to be here. Always talking about the, anything geo-related, especially ETAs, ATAs, is a complete pleasure. Great. So, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into uh, working in geography and um, on routing and ETAs. So my background and approach might be slightly kind of off the beaten path. Um, my academic background is actually in agricultural economics. Um, and I started studying um, food systems and how to optimize and manage them. A lot of people think that sounds kind of strange, but for me, actually, it was a quite natural progression into transportation and how to manage those ecosystems, because really it's all optimization problems. How do you achieve a goal, uh, provide a essential service with minimum or restrained resources um, and really try to solve those problems as efficiently as possible. And also there are problems that really touch people uh, in their day-to-day -day experience very much, which is what I've always liked about them. So after, um, after my studies, I actually started working first at Get, uh, which is a ride-hailing company started in Israel, um, active in uh, really a bunch of places around the globe. Uh, first from the perspective of business analytics. So I was really uh, deeply kind of ingrained in the data of how we should set pricing policies, how to provide better service to customers, um, really understanding how people behave in these on-demand transportation systems. Um, and I had the good fortune there of meeting the team that then founded uh, Autofleet, who we started working together quite shortly after that. And um, our goal at Autofleet has always been, how do we take this incredible consumer product that we found at Get and companies like it, right? Uber, Lyft, everybody really loves this idea of being able to hail a ride, hail a uh, you know, food delivery and have it come to you right, uh, right away. Um, the challenge that we saw, which is still what we're trying to solve today, is that these systems are quite inefficient. There hasn't really been a sustainable business model or a profitable business model for any of these uh, you know, ride hailing or on-demand food delivery companies. And that's what we're trying to solve at Autofleet by using the same uh, tools and technologies, but applying them to asset-heavy fleets. So our customers are you know, large rental, leasing, logistics, taxi companies. We're trying to take the existing assets in the industry and see how we can make them more efficient to provide better services for the general population. Okay, so, so you work with people like Get, maybe even people like Uber, or certainly those kind of competing services, but also with... Um, what, something like Zipcar? So our, we, we kind of connect uh, the players in maybe a slightly interesting way. We look at the, the platforms like an Uber or a Git as sources of demand. Uh, and all of these companies really have said they want to be asset light. 
Um, they want to um, just be the technology platform that connects between a passenger taking a ride and then a uh, supply of a vehicle and a driver who want to give a ride. And actually, if you look f- further enough into the future, when uh, you have autonomous vehicles, that business model is really the, the only way it can make sense is that you have fleets of autonomous vehicles that are managed by somebody. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, but then all the platforms are just sitting on top of that kind of shared autonomous supply. And you might be using the Uber app, but you could just as easily switch to another app and you're actually being served by the same, same uh, fleet of autonomous robotaxis that are serving, serving your city. Uh, our belief is just that that business model doesn't have to wait for autonomous technology. We can actually take existing fleet assets. So we're all, our customers are always actually the asset owner. A Zipcar, right. uh, Avis Budget Group, a Hertz, um, a large taxi fleet, the ones who are actually operating assets. And we're helping them both optimize their existing operations to just become more efficient, but also open them up to new sources of demand. So how do you take that rental car that's probably sitting 20% of the time being unused and now put it to use into new operations to make our resource usage as efficient as possible? Okay. So you, and you describe this as vehicle as a service. Exactly. The, the real vision that we have is how can we um, take that vehicle, that very expensive uh, asset, and apply it really dynamically to, to be used for any business. Um, you know, the same way that you can spin up additional uh, servers on the cloud um, to, uh, uh, to, to manage computing today. Um, we really believe that the, in any industry where you have an expensive, asset-heavy uh, uh, resource, that needs to be managed as efficiently as possible and as elastically as possible. Um, and that the platform that we provide is, is doing that. So that, 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 that fleet owner can one day rent out their car for a few days, the next day maybe do deliveries with it, and the next day start uh, serving passengers on the street. And is that actually happening now? Uh, it's, it's quite interesting to see that it already is. Um, we, we actually started um, from that end state and started with the idea of you know, how can we take unused supply from fleets and start putting it into new business models. But kind of no-brainer, win-win situation mm-hmm. uh, for, for both sides. When we started working with fleets, we found very quickly that the same tools that we had created to solve that problem were also solving a mu- even much larger problem today, which is their existing core business. Uh, so when we started going to rental companies with a pitch of, just give us your unused supply and you know let's make a new business model, we actually found that the core rental business is extremely inefficient and manual. Um, Even things like how do they decide where to put vehicles between different stations, different locations uh, throughout the territory. So by predicting demand, again, tools we had already developed for for other use cases, predicting demand, allocating supply between those locations, automating the servicing, the maintenance of those vehicles. We actually today are um, about half of our business is still just in the core internal operations of fleets. And then the other side is actually powering more on-demand businesses like ride-hail fleets, ride-share fleets, uh, delivery, logistics, whatever it might be. Okay, so um, how big is this? How many, how many vehicles do you reckon you're, you're managing at the moment? It's, it still feels surprising to say we're, I guess, about four years into it now. And today we're managing uh, tens of thousands of vehicles in live operations uh, across, I think, about 20 countries. Uh, and we do millions of rides a month already. Um, so wow. already we're, um, we're even getting to the point where you know, we have multiple different operations in one city. So we can start to see some, 
some pretty uh, pretty interesting synergies uh, that can can start to come up once once we're actually operating at scale in a, in a particular location. Right. So you operating in London yet? We're very much in London. Uh, London, we actually are already with three different uh, operations um, uh, with across a pretty wide range of business models as well, from uh, bike sharing to car sharing to um, last mile delivery. Okay, fine. So we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more. So um, is the tech all yours or is it um, it's all in-house? Absolutely. Um, so uh, really the the core problems that we are really solving of doing things like uh, dispatching and route optimization, um, demand prediction, uh, allocation of vehicles, automating the operations of vehicles. These are all things that we've uh, built proprietary in a proprietary way. Um, obviously, being a very geo-based solution, almost every single problem we're trying to solve is a, is a problem that happens in a spatial relationship. Um, we're trying to find the best vehicle to serve an order. So we're calculating multiple routes of multiple vehicles, uh, considering the constraints of those vehicles and the other stops that those vehicles have to serve. So we are obviously a very map heavy uh, 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 operator. And maybe when we talk more about ETAs and ATAs, I can describe how we okay. how we do some of those as well. But uh, yeah, maybe we can get into the data that some of the data that underpins that as well. Right. So let's go to ETAs because that's the fascinating thing. Um, and just to frame the problem, um, anyone who's used Uber or Get or any of the other apps or anyone who's ordered a, a, a meal to be delivered on Deliveroo or Just Eat or whatever, you've, you've seen the problem. You, you get a forecast of when it's going to arrive. And... It's not always very accurate. <laughs> so, so tell me about how Autofleet's approach to ETAs and what the challenges are. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think you, you said it uh, exactly right. This is something that people are probably interacting with on a daily basis um, and seeing how different providers and apps are trying to solve the same thing and experiencing also how it's still maybe an unsolved problem. Uh, I think the first fascinating thing is uh, even when we were previously working in ride sharing, ETA was kind of this, it was like the magic key to having some sort of, uh, um, you know, flywheel solution within the industry of that. If you were able to have enough supply of drivers, you could reduce ETAs. If you had lower ETAs, you could get more customers. If you had more customers, you would have more business for your drivers and you could get more drivers. And then it just keeps on going, uh, like that. Um, what even in the past, let's say, 10 years, it's fascinating to see that customer expectations, I think, have evolved beyond that, that it, it honestly really talk about three things. One is that the ETA has to be good. That hasn't changed. Still, people want their stuff as fast as possible. It's not surprising. The second part, though, and, and this is where it gets more advanced, is that not only does it need to be good, it needs to be accurate. If you said it was going to take you five minutes and it takes you 10, that's no good. Um, and then even beyond that, the, and this might even be the most challenging, um, it even needs to be stable. So if I told you five minutes and then at some point it jumped up to 10 and then even if I was right and it comes back to that five minutes that I thought that instability or unpredictability is too much for people to handle in the way they are currently using these services. Yeah. I've experienced that <laughs> so many times. Yeah. <laughs> so 
So tell me, um, okay, so that's the challenge. You need, people want short ETAs, they want accurate ETAs, and they want stable ETAs. Um, and I think you also said when I heard you talking in Tel Aviv that um, if you're the operator, there is a sense that you know that there is a connection, there's a relationship between customer booking the service and ETA time. So um, I don't know what the figures are, but there is some relationship. You know, if I go online and I told an Uber's going to take me 20 minutes to get to me, um, it might be accurate, it might be stable, but I'm probably not going to book it at 20 minutes. I'm going to go rushing off to search all the other services that are on my phone. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, right, we really see a very strong correlation between the actual uh, ab absolute uh, level of ETA, the, the waiting time that you are shown, um, and the conversion rate. So it's the probability that you actually make, uh, make that booking. Um, and we know people today will... You know, open multiple apps and um, kind of compare and, and take a look at those. Um, and the so this is it's a real operational problem that the underpinnings of it is essentially you have to have more supply, right? You have to have more drivers out there to be able to supply those ETAs, but that's not always possible. Um, we've seen some manipulation be done of even trying to just artificially reduce ETAs. The what's interesting to see is that customers have gotten so smart that that backfires actually immediately. We actually see that the, the metric that pairs very well with this conversion rate is that if you look at the difference between what ETA you shown, showed to the customer and then what was the uh, ETA that they saw, let's say, two minutes later, um, if there's a large gap between those, there's another correlation that essentially is as that gap grows, there's a very uh, high correlation with cancellation rate. So even if you tried to cheat it will come back at you a few minutes later because the customer will see that the ETA jumped up and will just cancel the service and uh, they're smarter than that. Right. So how so how do you at Autofleet do this to try and get accurate ETAs? Because it's not just about that taxi is three kilometers away and at uh, 25 kilometers an hour, it's going to take so many minutes to get there or something, is it? Um, absolutely. Uh, it's definitely, um, yeah, a bit behind those, you know, maybe grade school, uh, uh problems of just <laughs> the, the speed and the, the number of vehicles. And, um, so I think the, the, the first part is just the, the infrastructure and the tools that we have to build and have access to in order to be making many, many, many route calculations at scale. So we, um, in general are integrated to all of the leading maps providers. Um, and we have to have that agnostic capability to switch uh, quite nimbly between them uh, for different territories that have different performance for different providers, um, even just to manage the scale that we're uh, operating at um, for, for each one of these. Um, and we even have to have redundancy on top of that because the services we work for are really essential services if there's any sort of downtime in our, uh, the dependency that we have on third party provider has to be limited. So we have to build fallbacks of having our own deployments on things like OpenStreetMaps um, and even other tools that can even default uh, on top of that. The interesting thing we've actually started to see is that as we get to significant scale of deployments in certain cities, we're actually able to build our own internal models for calculating uh, these travel times. 
in in new markets or markets uh, where uh, we might have smaller operations, we generally use things like Google Maps or Mapbox and rely on the you know, live traffic data they they have in the system. But we're starting to see already that um, uh, when we really are getting to a significant scale, we can start to um, uh, even have more fleet specific operations. And that's where we start to see greater accuracy gains because the nothing will be more representative of the travel time for a taxi in Jakarta than the historical data of taxis in Jakarta and how those drivers drive and what routes they take um, and how they actually respond versus modeling that on a general population. So right. the, the more we can do to get to a more specific use case, that's definitely step one to uh, have uh, better accuracy. So you're using, you're building up models of traffic and journey times um, in a city based, uh, you know, presumably that go round round the clock. So you know that traffic is heaviest between four and six o'clock in the evening or whatever. Um, are you also using live traffic feeds? Absolutely. Um, so it's it's definitely a combination of uh, uh, of that and really trying to look at both the more fleet specific information of how this specific operator travels and what is their usage pattern, and then the general uh, live traffic feeds that we're getting from from other external maps providers. Right. And uh, and what what difference has all this made in terms of? accuracy of predicting ETAs? So it's, uh, so this is uh, definitely still just one step within, uh, within many that we, we have to take. And often what we see is um, the, there's just the need to calibrate a specific operation to how it works. I think that's uh, maybe if I could give one overall uh, strategy that we really have seen be successful. It's having uh, to make the adjustments and configurations to make sure an operation is being routed and the ETAs are being as specific to how they work as possible. Um, so one thing is what I mentioned now of you know, more using fleet specific data, but other examples might even be things like uh, driver behavior. We see, for example, that if you look at different drivers and compare the actual arrival time to the estimated arrival time, that uh, that gap is different for different different people, different driving patterns, different strategies, different experience. Right. Um, in food delivery, for example, we see the same thing based on, in food delivery, there's another complication because you actually have to not just predict travel time, but actually cooking time. So ideally you want to know that the best case scenario is that a delivery uh, uh, courier is arriving at a restaurant just when the, the food's coming out of the, out of the kitchen. So we're trying to both manage the time it will take to do that and the time to route them to the, to the restaurant. Um, and there, for example, we see that different restaurants, different food types, different uh, even ratings can influence that time. So really what we've had to build up over time is these very specific uh, uh, ways to handle these different kind of use cases um, for, for operations. And we're, we're seeing at the level of we can go from really cutting uh, that gap between arrival time and estimated arrival time. We're able to cut it down generally within a week or two of a launch uh, by upwards of 50%. So that's a huge impact wow. on customers. And that must have a big impact on the business of the people who are working with you. Precisely. Um, that's uh, where we really start to see those changes in conversion rates. We see those changes in um, uh, you know, more, more orders from customers, uh, better customer satisfaction. Um, and it's, it's really incredible to see how just this small topic about estimated arrival times is having both 
huge revenue impacts on the business because it's really the deciding factor of do I book with you today or not? Uh, and also the customer service and just the brand experience. Um, it seems like there's nothing more frustrating to a customer than having an unreliable experience with, uh, with one of these apps and probably the thing that makes them least likely to come back. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I know from my own experience, you know, it's so frustrating, you know, and the worst one is when the driver cancels on you after exactly. 10 minutes. Yeah. Because he's presumably struggling in traffic and he just gives up. Right. Which is exactly, yeah. which is also a result. It's just the flip side of the same problem. Um, because yeah. if you, if we're not accurately calculating ETAs for drivers and um, we actually see quite interestingly that if you, if you do it right, and you're really matching the best driver to the order, it should ideally both achieve a better experience for the customer, but also a better experience for the driver because they're closer and more available and it'll be a much more predictable experience for them. Um, thinking it will take five minutes and taking 15 isn't going to be fun for either side. Okay, so you said before that you worked with rental fleets and people like that. And... Um, I was looking on your website and saw the case study about um, Zipcar in in the UK um, in 2021. Um, Tell me a little bit about that, Adam. I think you're referring to um, the fuel crisis. Um, Correct. uh, Yeah. yeah. So um, this is also a kind of interesting way that I think – geospatial problems can can, uh, impact very also real-world, very operational things. Um, So – um, it feels like it was ages ago, but it was quite recently, right? The, the UK essentially ran out of uh, petrol for, yeah. <laughs> for pretty much for a few weeks. Um, you know, these lines were, I think, out of this world. Uh, I think some of the some of the pictures uh, of what was going on, and for so Zipcar is a car sharing fleet, um, and they are the customers will refuel uh, the vehicles in normal situations, but in this case, there was no fuel, so very very quickly the entire fleet was um uh pretty much shut down because there was no fuel uh inside so they really had to go on a proactive operation to uh understand when there would be uh, fuel at which locations and figure out how to get that fuel into the fleet as quickly as possible uh so one of the things we're able to do is very quickly automate that operation um we are we also pull live data from the vehicles themselves so we can see which ones have the lowest fuel levels and prioritize those we know where uh, the available fuel locations will be and can quickly make a plan of which vehicles to refuel at which locations. Um, and almost really overnight, we are able to start getting these vehicles back online um, by telling operational teams uh, the best routes to take. So really create a plan for them throughout the course of the day of these are the vehicles you should take and when to take them uh, and start getting that back, uh, back online. Uh, and so, presumably also working out where to leave them, because the thing with the zip cars is you just park them on the street for somebody to pick up later on. Precisely. Um, so once that's been refueled, putting it back on the road. Um, I, one, one, I think, just interesting anecdote from this operation. So the uh, with the zip car fleet, uh, about 40, 50 percent of the vehicles are electric. So you would think that maybe they'd be um, uh, immune from from these effects. Something crazy happened that the the lines at the petrol stations were so long that many of the chargers are actually in the back of petrol stations and you physically could not 
get access to the to the charger right. um, because it was uh, blocked off by uh, a line of very ornery uh, 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 Brits waiting to to get their petrol. Um, so we had some stories from uh, the operations teams also just being stuck outside trying to cut through a line of uh, of people and, and not succeeding. Okay, so um, it's interesting. It's a fascinating story because um, yeah, you wouldn't. You just would not realize, think of the consequences of that fuel crisis that we went through. Um, and I have to say, from our point of view here in London, um, we had full tanks at the beginning of the thing and just didn't use the car very much and had nearly full tanks at the end of it. And it didn't really affect us at all. But I know lots of people who have to use their car every day were really struggling with that. And uh, for fleets, it must have been a nightmare. So... Right back at the beginning, you mentioned um, how this managing of resources was going to be a challenge going forward to autonomous fleets. And uh, I think most of us who work in this space and anybody who's interested in mobility sort of is looking to this mythical future of autonomous fleets, um, you know, and... Some of us, like me, are maybe becoming a bit sceptical about whether we'll ever really see truly autonomous fleets. But, um, I mean, what it certainly seems is that uh, the zip cars and the Ubers, uh, which are two different sides of um, of the sort of mobi so mobility solutions, um, they're all leading us to a situation where there is virtually no car ownership amongst normal people. You know, I mean, you can see a future. You know, I, I, my kids now are abandoning owning cars. They just can't see the point in owning a car. Um, they grab a zip car, or they take, you know, or they take an Uber, um, or they use public transport. But sort of, they they switch between those things. Um, and autonomous vehicles will accelerate that massively. I'm I'm guessing. Um, because who would want an autonomous vehicle sitting outside their home all day? So where does Autofleet play in this, in this story? And what's your take on it? I, uh, first I'll say that I think you're justified in your skepticism at this point. Um, it's, yeah. uh, uh, sometimes you can see these posts of people kind of rewinding back to like 2012 with, uh, we're two years away, we're three years away and maybe we're still two, two or three years away. But um, the, the truth is, I've, I've, I think previously I might have tried to be a prophet, but I think the the important thing that we've tried to do at Autofleet is actually just remove that question from our strategy. And really our approach is we believe very much that fleets will have a significant role to play sometime in the sometime in the future, whenever that future comes. But there's so much that they can do at the moment uh, to optimize their operations. And really what we're trying to do as a company is to be in that very strategic position so that when that technology is ready or when the business models start to develop, whenever it might be, we'll just be in the best place to really take advantage of it. Um, and the interesting thing that we've done from a, what, so one part of that is just commercially, meaning we want to be engaged with the largest fleets in the world so that once the opportunity starts to come around, um, we will be the clear partner to, to, to make that shift uh, as well. Uh, and we already start to see really interesting things like that. Uh, just one, I think, interesting story. We we were working uh, with one of the very large rental companies uh, right around when uh, COVID-19 broke out. 
And the rental business was shut down really almost overnight once travel stopped. They pretty much in two weeks time had launched a last mile delivery business working with grocery stores and because all of a sudden delivery exploded. Everybody wanted things uh, to their homes. Um, so they used the same vehicles and their employees from rental locations to start running a delivery service. Um, wow. I don't, I don't think there's another software platform in the world that could have enabled that switch so quickly to go from doing core kind of rental operation use cases and then immediately just turning it on to do dispatching and routing for delivery. Uh, so that, that kind of flexibility and the, and the uh, being able to be that partner for the fleet, I think, is one, one part of it for us that we, we want, to, want to maintain. Uh, and the other side is, from, from a technology perspective, uh, by working with fleets. So in most of our cases today, the driver is uh, a hired or employed uh, asset of the fleet. That means from a tech perspective, we're actually doing things slightly differently than than the more ride-hailing platforms would look at. Even things like deciding which ride to accept or reject, for us, that's an automated decision because the driver is agnostic. Um, we predict demand. We can route drivers to areas of high demand. We can tell the driver when to take a break, when to refuel, when to recharge. So today, actually, the driver, we essentially are treating them kind of like a, a resource, like almost like fuel. The driver has a shift that runs out. We route the driver back to uh, the, uh, or we route the vehicle back, really, back to a depot to drop off a driver and pick up another one. Um, so already we really have built a platform that is treating these fleets as, as if they're autonomous. It's just that there happens to be a driver who turns right. the wheel back and forth. So for us, and, and we, we do already have deployments with autonomous shuttles where we've done integrations to take that uh, next step. Um, so mostly we're, we're excited to see what happens. Um, if, it, if it takes a longer time, um, so be it. Um, and if it happens to accelerate, then uh, we are hoping we, we've already made the right steps to be there. So last question for you, Adam. In this uh, vision of the future, when we've got uh, fleets of autonomous vehicles that are delivering um, food to our homes and shuttling us to work and everything, um, are ETAs going to be more accurate? <laughs> One has to hope that yes, um, uh, that that impredictability um, that, that happens today, uh, we see is so, so impacted by so many uh, human elements that are happening uh, throughout the, throughout that process. Um, so we can only hope that as we have better coordination between vehicles, coordination between traffic signals, coordination between um, even hopefully the logistic centers that are you know providing the goods that these vehicles are transporting, um, that that level of automation does start to uh, uh, to, to yield results, um, but um, we'll have to see. Uh, let's uh, let's talk in what do you think? Twenty years and uh, <laughs> well, let's check in in five years and see what progress we've made, and then we can maybe predict at least when we can talk about automated fleets. Adam, it's been a real pleasure. It's been great fun um, and. I look forward to my next ride or my next uh, delivery being just a little bit more on time. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Next time we'll order together, see who comes first. Okay, we'll do that. We'll do that in Tel Aviv. Take care. Bye.
Thanks everyone for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any um, suggestions for topics that we should uh, cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. Um, You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. Um, You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. Um, You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.